Spread the love with WMFA merch, items designed to spark creative vibes for you and the artists in your life. Shop at WMFAPodcast.com slash merch. That's WMFAPodcast.com slash M-E-R-C-H. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Elizabeth Acevedo, whose latest novel, Clap When You Land, is out now from Quiltree Books. Elizabeth is the author of The Poet X, which won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, the Michael L. Prince Award, the Pura Belpre Award, the Boston Globe Horn Book Award, and the Walter Award, as well as With the Fire on High. She is a National Poetry Slam champion and holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Maryland. Elizabeth lives with her partner in Washington, D.C. If the form, whether prose or verse or hybrid in between, is like a container, like a container can't hold every kind of story. Clap When You Land is a gorgeous novel in verse that tells the story of Camino and Yahaira Rios, sisters who don't know of each other's existence until the day their father dies in a plane crash. Camino lives in the Dominican Republic with her aunt, while Yahaira lives in New York City with her mother. Their father, unbeknownst to the girls, has spent their lives traveling between them, living in New York and visiting the Dominican Republic every summer. Elizabeth started what would become Clap When You Land with a real event, a flight from JFK to Santo Domingo that crashed in Queens in November 2001. Using the emotional fallout of the tragedy and the potential it had for revealing deeply buried family secrets, Elizabeth creates a lyrical, urgent portrait of two girls fighting to stay true to themselves while processing intense grief. The girls' voices, alternating throughout the book, are distinctive, yet their fierce intelligence and emotional clarity reveal their sisterhood even before they meet. Elizabeth is, of course, a National Poetry Slam champion. And if you've seen her perform, which I encourage you to get online and do, or if you've read her other works, you know the extraordinary power of her gift for language, her ability to imbue it with an almost spiritual significance. Part of what's so powerful about her work, for me, is the way she's able to distill complex emotions for a younger audience without diluting them or condescending. There is a little bit of me that is trying to create examples in the books of like reaffirmations for reader, like whatever kind of girl you are or want to be is okay. And whatever that empowerment looks like, owning your, your body, your thoughts, whatever you want to say, like is okay. And if you don't know yet, that is also okay. Clap When You Land is a story about family and home, but it's also a complicated story about women. The bonds that forge between them, the danger to them that lurks everywhere, the ferocity of their agency in their own lives. We talk about how she incorporated so many themes, and there are more, without sacrificing focus or clarity. We also talk about why she loves writing for a young audience, and how the draft of Clap When You Land evolved into its final form. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which Elizabeth talks about what makes a good reading performance, by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Congratulations. I know it's such a weird time to be having a book enter the world and yours is, is still a little bit away. So hopefully it'll it'll get a little quieter. But um, I, re- I really, really enjoyed reading this. I wanted to start by just asking, you know, you use kind of as a jumping off point, American Airlines Flight 587, which crashed, you know, in in Queens on the way to the Dominican Republic back in 2001. And I, I wonder if you could just start 
by talking about what it was about that event that kind of kept in your memory and, and sort of evolved into wanting to give it a more human kind of face? Sure. I was 13 when Flight 587 fell from uh, from the sky on its way to the Dominican Republic. And it was two months after September 11th. Uh, you may know I was born and raised in New York City. So the city was still kind of reeling from this, you know, citywide national tragedy, really. And, and then two months later, this other plane falls out the sky. And initially, I think everyone was kind of like, oh, it's another act of, of terrorism, right? And then it was determined that it was mechanical slash pilot failure, right? But for those of us who were of the Dominican community, of the Dominican diaspora, I mean, I just remember it feeling so huge. There were people that we knew that were on that flight um, and it was coming after we were still mourning people who had died, you know, at the Twin Towers. And so it, it just really hit home for me. Like, what does it mean to want to be going home and be a part of such a public national tragedy? And yet also feeling like not enough people knew about this event. I mean, that that crash was the second deadliest crash in United States history, and yet very few people know that, you know, 300 plus people died on their way to the Dominican Republic, all these Dominican nationals with all these hopes and dreams. And, and I just remember really, really having to like grapple with that as a kid. Like I had friends whose parents were on that flight. My parents had friends who were on that flight. What does it mean to want to go back home to take this flight on a yearly basis for us we would go back every summer and and also know like that you had you know this there had been this rupture in what you thought as normal travel to and from this place that you adore and so i've always thought about that and thought about wanting more attention to those families wanting to have a better sense of what had happened um wanting to commemorate folks who were opening stores or retiring or off duty and and this was like their one time to see a relative and and that very few people ever knew that they'd existed and had these hopes and dreams and so clap when you land was something that i've been mulling since i was a child and wanting to talk about this crash and at the same time, having done all this research and realizing there were a lot of stories that became public that, you know, maybe should have been private or maybe um, were things that I'm sure family members wish they could have contemplated outside of the public eye. And so a lot of stories kind of wrapped into one for me with this one. And, and can you explain to folks um, who haven't read it yet what the significance is of the title, Clap When You Land? Yeah, so um, if, if folks have traveled to Latin America or the Caribbean, depending on what country you're going to, even on, on the continent of Africa, there are a few countries who do this, but when a plane lands, people applaud. And this used to be really big, especially maybe like two decades ago, it was just this moment of, I mean, I would anticipate it. I would get on a plane and anticipate that when we landed, there would be this uproarious applause. I mean, I can't pinpoint it. I think people do it for a different reason. One of it is tradition. It was just what people did. But but also partly, I think, this desire to, to thank whatever being or whatever power people believe in. Like, we made it. We made it back. Because it's more common that it would happen when you landed in the Dominican Republic than if you landed in New York. Even if the flight was the same group of, of Dominicans going to and from, something about we're here, we've returned, thank God we made it okay, thank the pilot, right, for his 
performance. Like that, there was just this euphoric gratefulness. We're about to land here in Santiago, <laughs> Dominican Republic. You still get it depending on where you you go. I think people just being joyous, like we're here. And so with a book about a crash, this idea of what does it mean to be here? What does it mean to be home? What does it mean to be safe, right? Is one of the major questions. Right. And and I love that hearing you describe that in in this bizarre, surreal moment that we're in right now. It makes me think, you know, this morning, a bunch of friends were just sharing this video of these police officers in Spain. Have you seen this singing to their community? I haven't, no. So they're patrolling and, and they have this daily ritual of like they park and then every, the ones who play instruments come out with their instruments and everybody stands, you know, the appropriate social distance and sing. then they're singing to everybody in their houses. And just like all these all these kind of outbursts that we're seeing of of that exact kind of gratitude that you're describing of just like, okay, well, well, we're here together. I think that when when you're in situations of potential danger and, and I, I mean, I don't know how planes fly, honestly, I don't know the aerodynamic, like the aerodynamics of like how things stay in the air. And I think a lot of us don't. And it just feels miraculous when something is so simplified and it's like we were hurtling through the sky for hours and now we are here and we are okay, right? And I think that in moments of, of, of intense emotion, of, of crisis, and, and you can't know what people are anticipating on that flight, who they might see, what they might be doing, where they might be going, right? That there's just like this filling up. And I think we're seeing it now, like as things have become very, very simple, you have enough to eat. Do you have enough to keep you occupied? Like, are you drinking water? Do you have you called your family members? Things feel really simple, but I feel like that gratefulness of thank goodness, like we're okay, is also really simple. Or thank you know, or that hope of I hope this family member gets better. Or, I hope you know this is just a runny nose and allergies. Like I think everything is so simplified right now, and and it kind of feels like that. In those first moments when you're a plane lands and you your phone's not fully connected, you're still figuring things out like, okay, I'm here. I'm here, I'm breathing, like, and the person next to me is here and breathing. Like that though, I don't know. I think there's something about the simplicity of of facing things head on and realizing how much worse things could be. Right. That that make you really appreciate whatever little joys you have. Yeah. And I love that as a jumping off point. I want to connect it to something that you said, you know, when you were explaining your connection to this memory of, of this flight is is that it does air things that um, maybe families wish they could have dealt with privately or maybe would have come up in a, in a, in a smaller way. Um, but at the same time, also kind of simplifies those things, sort of flattens those experiences into like, well, flattens isn't, isn't quite what I mean, but uh, throws really into relief, like what matters and what doesn't. And, and so the, the girls at the heart of the story you know, they have to learn a lot of shocking lessons really quickly, you know, and, and grieve on top of it. And can you talk a little bit about like threading both of those needles, you know? Yeah. Cause they, they have this, this ferociousness, you know, they, they're so, they, 
I, I mean, I want to talk later much more about about a lot of these qualities, but you know, they they are focused so much on on what they're uncovering while at the same time their you know their entire worlds have fallen apart. Yeah, it was um, it was an interesting story to try to weave because there are a lot of storylines that are taking place at once, right? And with any fiction, you have the the main story, and then you often have the second story. And with this one, because I have these these two main characters they each have kind of layers that they're delving through. I initially started the story and it was only in Yahira's voice. So it was just a sister in New York who learns that her father had a secret family. And I finished the draft of that story and it was bad. Like I couldn't figure out what was missing, but I knew this this story isn't compelling. There's there's, you know, it's not doing justice to what I imagine a story like this could do. Right. And and to the people who it's attempting to honor, in, including the folks who, who passed and the family members who survived it, right? And so I was talking with the author, E.B. Zaboy. Um, we were signed to the same literary agency and, and we were checking in about projects and I told her about this idea I had, you know, and E.B.'s Haitian. Um, so she also gets the island story and what it means to, to make that kind of trip. And she told me, you know, you need that other sister. Like you need, you need to, to give us that voice. And it was like something immediately clicked. Like that night I began writing in Camino's voice. So you get these two sisters and and I'm trying to go back and forth with who the father figure was to them. You never see this father figure, you know, Mm -hmm. from the very first moment that he's dead. And how do we navigate this big moment of how each one of them are dealing with this very public tragedy in their, you know, communities in the countries that they're from. But then also like, how do you deal with the very personal tragedy of like, I I have to learn how to forgive someone who I never had the opportunity to even be angry at, to let them know they did me harm, to, to have them ask me to forgive them. I have to create all of the words I wish I could hear from this person while also being really sad, while also having to perform a, a kind of grief right? For everyone who's looking at me. And so it was a story of the the personal ways that they had dealt with this bigger than life father figure, how they have to deal with learning about each other. And then also like their individual roles and journeys, their love interests, their their hopes and dreams about their careers, about school. Like, you know, they're, they are also just regular teenage girls in some ways. And so it was difficult for me to figure out the the key points. And it, you know, I've been writing and working on this story for a long time. And it was through the research that I I found out about folks who had multiple families and there were all these debates about who shouldn't inherit whatever money they got from the airline. And so I found answers to the story I was attempting to write from, you know, actual real life and then crafted around that by trying to touch on some other things that I felt were necessary to this story. Um, mostly, you know, the, the the thread through both of them of like, what does it mean to live in a man's world where sexual assault is so rampant and yet really hard to to talk about and pin down and name? Yeah, that's, that's something that I absolutely wanted to talk to you about, that idea of, um, you know, these Camino and and Yahara, their relationships to their bodies and men's relationships to their bodies and how they're trying to maintain, not even maintain, I mean, just kind of like 
assert any kind of agency over over their bodies and i think that extends to their you know their life choices and wanting to have agency in their in their lives as well and the actions that they take through the book certainly express that but but yeah the ways that the physicality um reality that the physical reality of of being these girls in the bodies that they're in um just is not something you know you don't get to hit pause on that because you're going through something traumatic no no and in, in fact i think for both girls like the those relationships that they have to their bodies and that men have had to their bodies you know greatly affects where you find them like where the story begins and and where the story ends to me it was a story about women mm -hmm. and how we hold each other how we make room for each other how we um, transform for each other in order to heal ourselves in some ways. But it's also a story about the ghost of men and what they've done, right? Like the memories of, of what it means to grow into a body knowing what can be done to you. And, 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 and both are incredibly honest, right? That we are in a moment where we're thinking about me too. We're thinking about the, the trying to parse the language of um, when we say sexual assault, when we say, you know, this thing has been done to me, it may not always look the same. And, and each sister has a very different relationship with what approaches men have taken to them. And, and they, I would say, scale, right? One can be as far as sex tourism slash, um, I guess, pimping someone out. And the other one is, you know, what does it mean to be molested? And, and that's a hard thing to write, mm -hmm. to have two sisters who are both dealing with this. And so I try to just, yeah, think through like, what, what does their womanhood mean? And also not be afraid of naming that it is incredibly possible that each one of these girls could have had this situation, having traveled to the Dominican Republic and seen what sex tourism looks like in very particular areas. Everyone wants to think about the resorts and they don't think about what tourism on an impoverished island also looks like for young women, right? But then also just every day on the train, on, you know, in stores, in an Uber like that, there are little things that happen and little exchanges that happen that we also have to be talking about when we talk about the safety of girls. Mm -hmm. This book is trying to hold a lot. <laughs> but it, yeah, you know, but it, it's so well done. And, you know, I'm thinking too, even as, as you're talking, and I don't want to just flip from subject to subject and betray all the cups of coffee that I've already had today. Um, <laughs> but, but I was thinking, you know, when you talk about the resort, I think that's another thing that it does so well. And, and it's so hard to kind of incorporate sort of more, you know, capital S social societal ideas without it feeling like this is an idea book that I'm writing. But, you know, it, it, it's so part of the fabric of the book. I know I think about this a lot, you know, in my own writing. Uh, I write about Appalachia and I think a lot about depictions of rural poverty and um, rural exploitation. And, um, and I think that I think that the way that you've done it is the way that for me as a reader is often most successful, which is just, I'm, I, I'm not even explaining this to you because they're not even noting it as noteworthy. This is just what their life is like. Oh no. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think depending on the project, like you can't. Right. And, and so much of, I would argue all three of the YA novels that I've you know, have in the world or, or will soon have in the world are very much like, I'm going to drop you in the middle of some shit and like, you will have to figure this out, including language, including um, what this, what this new community looks like, or this new country. Like I didn't, 
I didn't want to over explain. And like, there are, there are subtle clues because people might not know, right. That this is such a big thing in, in the Caribbean and worldwide. When people travel, they might not know that, that, you know, what are the realities of other places, but, but a lot of people do. And I don't want to ever make it seem like a character is, isn't fully fleshed. Right. And that their reality isn't fully fleshed to them. So Mm -hmm. I really work hard not to over explain and to trust that my readers are smart and generous and will do work. And, and and my books require a little bit of work and, and yeah. I'm okay with that. Even even for kids, like I'm okay if you might have to look something up. I'm okay if you're not entirely sure the world you're walking into. But because I'm trying to contain so much, you know, if I try to go into let's talk about prostitution laws in the Dominican Republic. Like, that's going to be, you know, that's a different book. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. And, and it's funny. I think, I don't know if this is just um, my personal experience or if this was anything intentional, but I noticed between reading The Poet X and then reading Clap on You Land, um, I, I definitely looked more stuff up, not because I was less curious in the Podex, but I think the context clues were a little bit more there in the in the Podex. And I think maybe here it's a little bit more like, yeah, no, do do the work, look it up. Yeah, I think this is gonna be a, a tougher book for some people. I mean, I I don't I mean it that way. I loved it. I love it. I, I knew when I was writing it. I mean, I I wanted the, one of the characters lives in the Dominican Republic. I had to be very mindful that her first language is Spanish, that right. she's thinking in Spanish, that although I am writing her in English from the, the semantics to her speech patterns, I am trying to map on to what I know is Spanish syntax. So there are phrases or sentences that that even at the level of the writing feel a little jarring because they are thinking, I'm trying to think about it in Spanish. How would a Spanish speaker who is primarily in this language thinking through? Not to mention the fact that, that her voice has more Spanish in it. I know that this is going to be a, a tougher book for readers in at, just at the level of language than perhaps the Poet X was. The Poet X had some Spanish in it. It has some slang in it. There were, I think, a few more context clues. And people may be a little bit more familiar with the setting or the character of the Poet X. Clap when you land. Um, I had to really take a lot of risks, right? Even at the level of the way that the sister in the Dominican Republic speaks, like there are syntactical and, and language-based things that I had to keep in mind. Like this is a Spanish speaker. She, that is her first language. That's what she thinks in. So the writing should reflect that I'm mapping on, I'm writing her in English, but I'm mapping that on to how her speech pattern works. I'm mapping that on to what would be the phrase in Spanish. And, and so in English, that, that energy has to come through. And it's not, it's almost like a kind of translation of a character, right? And so I know that that's going to make it difficult, that that's going to require work from audiences, that it might not have, you know, that universal girlhood appeal that the Poet X seems to have tapped into for some people. That was also the project. You know, I went in knowing, like, I want this this is a t- difficult subject matter. We're talking about grief. This is a hard thing to look at. You know, parents who have all these secrets, like the craft should reflect that it is also encountering difficulty, that I am frustrating the writing and that the reader might feel frustrated and, and that that's also okay. 
Right. Absolutely. Also, hopefully not like too frustrated. Hopefully. No, no, no. No, not at all. I just mean it felt definitely more, um, I think embedded maybe is the word that that's coming to mind for me. I love that. um, But I I love what you're saying. Can you talk a little bit more about crafting those, those voices? And, and that's something I wanted to ask you about anyway, because I think it's so, um, I was, I was really struck by how you know, they feel like related voices, you know, they feel like sisters, but they feel very, di- but they speak very differently. Um, and, and I love that, that there is able to be this kind of fluidity between them, but you still very clear, you always know who's speaking. And that was probably one of the biggest things that I, I revised for. And I had everyone, I, I have a good amount of beta readers, including my editor, who's must have read this, I mean, dozens of times at this point. Um, I asked everyone to kind of look for voice. Like, do the sisters feel like distinct people or do they just sound like Liz Acevedo, right? And so when I wrote, it helped that I wrote your Hyra story first. So her voice was very um, clear throughout. And, and then I went into Camino's voice, but then I thought about, okay, where are they from? And so for me, the New York voice, which is a lot sharper, there's a lot more punctuation in her writing. She's also written in, in couplets. Um, which means that visually, you know, that this is a, this is a separate character from Camino who's written in tercets, but, but I was looking for something a little bit more staccato. I was looking for a harder, grittier voice. And so when I wrote her, her sentences tend to be shorter. Her thoughts tend to be a lot more, um, rapid fire. And then you have Camino who I wrote in, in tercets and, She's a lot more long sentences. There's a lot more metaphored idioms, which felt really natural because I feel like Dominicans talk in sayings, like it's, everything requires a saying. And so the fact that she is um, always has a, a quick metaphor comparison felt true to how she would have understood her environment. Like this is how she learned about the place that she was from, was through figurative language, was through this particular kind of... Um, myth making of place and so you see that when she talks about where she's from or the comparison she uses um and that was probably the biggest thing if i can i'm a i'm kind of a craft nerd so we can (laughs) i was just like i was like i love talking to poets they're always like so like like line by line syllable by syllable i love it (laughs) but i really thought about this is the biggest piece of advice whenever someone talks to me about novel and verse i'm always like what is the language of experience of the character and i think it is truer for a novel and verse than it is for prose because you have less words you can play with so if you're trying to craft that voice you want to make sure that it is aligned to what this character knows and so yahira is going to go back to metaphors of new york of of grit of chess because that is the world that she occupies that is how she is going to speak through things. So you see that that is a through line for, for her language base. You know, Camino is someone who is near the ocean, who is thinking about natural disasters, who's thinking about cleaning and, and, and medicine and her interest. And so her things come through in that way. And, and for me, that felt like a very clear way to create the worlds that they live in and thus the languages that they use. And so hopefully a reader, even if you don't see the name at the top of the page, can pick up the book in any page and know, okay, this is this sister and that's that sister. And it's through all of these reinforced um, approaches to craft, but also just very specific things like here's how many lines each sister's used so you can figure out the pattern. 
Right, right. Did you ever play with uh, drafts for Camino in Spanish? Like just even for yourself in drafting, like as you mentioned, the syntactical um, kind of mapping that you were trying to do. I, I For certain sections, I mean, there would be lines that I just knew, like, this doesn't feel like something she would say. And so I would write the stanza in Spanish and then translate it back into English um, as closely aligned to the, the grammar as I could. But, but very infrequently, and it depended on how stuck I felt, like, oh, no, this isn't hitting home. But I did write, there was a good amount of, I wrote letters from the father's point of view what he wished he had told his daughter. And that was going to be a plot point at one point, but, but it still helped me, I think, craft a character that wasn't entirely evil. And I had to make sure that that was very clear. Like this was a man who was beloved and was very good at being a parent in some ways. Oh, and, and adored them, clearly. And adored them, right? And so that would be something that I, I think of as like the, the outtakes, right? Where I wrote this whole character and this gift he left behind and it didn't make it into the book, but it helped me understand the story. So I don't know Camino didn't have that. Um, I think his voice was helpful. And he wrote in Spanish uh -huh. to Camino and wrote in English to Yahira. So that also helped me maybe with some of the language of how would they speak to him and how would he speak to them? Right. Helped um, draft some of their, their approaches to language. Right. Yeah. And, and I love that. And I think there's so much, um, you know, I think sometimes I feel like when we as writers say like, well, you know, everything, nothing's wasted and everything gets you to <laughs> the final draft. Sometimes you're just trying to keep yourself from like falling into despair. <laughs> but, but I think it's true. I think, I think, and, and, you know, I'm not surprised now that you say that, that I can kind of feel like the, the hand of that, like that these, that because he is this ghost figure in the book. You're right. I mean, it's, I think there's a beautiful way to, to think about him. And, um, and it's really interesting, even thinking about his dynamics, you know, Yahira, um, they connect with chess, right? It's very intellectual. It's very strategic. They're very, um, you know, it's, it's this sort of power play kind of, kind mm -hmm. of tutorship, tutor, uh, tutelage that's going on. Um, but, but Camino, it's water, it's swimming, it's emotion, it's, it's intuition, you know, it's what everybody brings out in everyone. Yeah, I love that observation. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm still at the stage where I've, I've, I don't have readers for this book yet, right? Like, it's just folks who have gotten early editions. So I have no idea how people are going to respond to their voices or how they're crafted. I think I'm still coming up with ideas of things I may have done differently or, you know, you were talking, I was like, oh, maybe Camino should have been the chess player. <laughs> this is what, like, it's terrible about any, any project that you... I could revise forever. Like if you left me, I would just keep writing the story over and over and getting somewhere new. And so you have to literally pull the book from my hands, but I'm so curious about what readers will find. And I, I love what you, you know, you just said, because it made me realize like Camino doesn't consider herself a chess player, but you know, she had the strategy and the, okay, here's, here's the goal, right. From the beginning. And in many ways, Yahira's like, I've never, I don't swim, right? That was something that my father did that I've, I don't have a relationship to. And yet, when you talk about intuition and her, you know, like that they did get these pieces. Um, and I didn't write that intentionally, but looking at it, I'm like, oh, look, he did instill something in each of them that I hadn't anticipated they would have as characters. Oh, I love that um, so much. So look at you giving me answers. <laughs> now when somebody asks me, I'm like, yeah, no, totally intentional. <laughs>
I was out here writing the in my diary about my <laughs> I won't say a word. Go for it. <laughs> what is it about about novels and verse that you think appeals to you as a format? I like the constraint. I think it's I think it's hard. I think it's really hard to do well. It's difficult to find a character. You're like mining for a character in all of the language that you have and all the ideas you have. You can't just sit down and and in the way that prose would allow you describe what a character looks like and their setting and you know you don't have you don't have enough um real estate for that this is the this is the plot of land you have you can you have this this physical constraint of people can't sit with verse i think for for more than a few hundred pages and you can't um you can't ornament the language you can't have too much or people will feel bogged down and so you have to be so specific of like Every moment that I show this character or that there's dialogue or that a piece of setting is described is precious and it has to be purposeful. And so for me, it feels like it distills a story to the most essential pieces. Who is this? Why do they matter? What happens? And um, I find that really, really challenging and exciting and it also means that i can get really close to a character right the interiority is so important in a novel and verse how can is this a character that people will want to live in their heads for a while because not a lot is going to happen i don't think a novel and verse can have a big cast i don't think it can be a massive adventure story you just you can't describe it in the same way or i i cannot do those kinds of stories in verse yet right? Like I'm still learning how, how much verse can stretch. And so that means that I have to show you a character as clearly as possible, but in 30,000 words. And I find it exciting. I think if you can pull it off, if you can make the language beautiful and the story captivating, um, you've done something really special because it's, you're walking a tightrope, right? Of verse and poetry, but not quite. And then of prose and narrative, but not quite. And that marriage, if you can get it right, I think it's why when someone does a novel in verse really well, you know, it kind of stands up against whatever else is put out. I'm thinking of, you know, Jason Reynolds. I'm thinking of um, Laurie Hulse Anderson's memoir. I'm thinking here of Nikki Grimes. Like all these stories that are in verse, there's a reason why I think they stand out. And it's because, yeah, that challenge. Yeah. And I, and I love what you said about the intimacy with the character because I think that that is is very much what it what it hinges on in terms of moving the reader forward right you have to be very invested in in who in the voice like it has to succeed on that on that stylistic level but it also has to do the heavy lifting that kind of exposition might do or the stuff that kind of can like you know drag you forward in a in a narrative when the plot kind of isn't happening um you have to really just be compelled by their presence. Right. Yeah. You, I mean, they require characters that really, it's a one woman show in some ways, right? It's like when you go see a play, like you're not going to get the big singing ensemble. That's not happening here. When I think of a big fantasy story, I'm like, well, there's probably enough interesting characters with swords that you can figure this out. You'll find someone you like, mm -hmm. you know, when you have a cast of maybe six characters total rotating through a story, like, yeah, you're going to need someone who, who's a heavy hitter who can get on the stage and like, hold the attention for a while because there's not a lot of relief elsewhere. And so I don't think every story can lend itself to that. It's why my second story was in prose because mm -hmm. I knew that that particular story needed something different, right? If, if 
if the form, whether prose or verse or hybrid in between, is like a container, like a container can't hold every kind of story. Right. And I, I think my job is figuring out, oh, this is an interesting premise. What container does it need? I love that. I love that. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash W-M-F-A podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. I, I wanted to say um, about the sisters. Well, first of all, I would love for you to talk a little bit, just kind of open-endedly about, about their relationship and sort of, I was so fascinated to see the way that they kind of responded to each other and the ways that it maybe wasn't necessarily as I would expect. Um, I think they, they immediately have a very, a very authentic sisterly relationship, right? It's very complicated and, and there's some jealousy, but there's also this sense of like, the, here's this other person that knows my experience. That's another, you know, we're talking about how this book is doing a lot of jobs, but that's another job that it's doing. And can you talk a little bit about what you wanted to get out of their, their kind of relationship? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it was hard because I knew that in many ways, each sister, th- this is the other person who has a piece of their father, right? Who holds um, a, a closeness to him. And so they they want that piece. They want to be able to get whatever is left of him, right? But also, this is the person who, for however length of time, took your father from you, right? And neither one of them can get over the fact of like, if he hadn't had that other family, he'd be here, right? This wouldn't have happened. Um, I think Yahira deeply empathizes and feels for Camino and like what it must have meant to grow up without the father for the majority of the year. And I think Camino is like, yo, I want what I'm owed, right? They are not, they are very distinct in terms of, and it has to do with the comfort. It has to do with the privileges of how Ethan was raised with the security, with the safety, you know, the father tried the best, but there's something different that happens when you are physically in a space and a presence versus when you are a visitor. And so Camino in some ways loves her father and adores him, but they are more friends, right? Like he, she, she's, you know, that she's very clear. Like there are things my father tried to tell me that I'm not going to do because he's not here. He can't make me. They both resent their father even before he passes for different reasons. It makes their relationship hard, right? And I don't want to give too much away, but it means that in some, they are adversarial at first, and yet they are all the other person has at certain points in the book. They are, they are the answer of relief. Um, when when each one needs like I I have to figure this out and so I need you which like what better definition of family is there <laughs> <laughs> right right and I think also I wanted to consider like 
you know, th this is true for most airlines. People will sue insurance companies after a few years. Will will give you money, perhaps depending on the accident, what it's determined to be. Airlines will often try to get ahead, uh, you know, of a lawsuit by giving grievance money, which is the premise on the story, right? They have um, they've received an advance on grievance payment, or one of them has. And so there's a very material gain from the father's passing. And then it's just about, I wanted to consider the question of, you know, if you find a new family member, how is that a gain? At what cost? What, like, what, what does it mean to gain and lose? Like that is, that was a big question. And when it comes to people, you know, I have, I have a girlfriend who um, uh, has multiple siblings and has discovered them throughout the years and through Facebook messages and through all kinds of things. And, and grew up with, you know, with neighbors who had multiple siblings and you would meet a new sibling. I come from a massive family where, you know, my mom is one of 15. I'm constantly meeting new cousins. And like, what does it mean to bond very quickly with someone because of the circumstances of, of, of blood? Like you, you are for all intents and purposes, a member of, of this line of, of my lineage, of my ancestry, of, of who I am. And, what does that mean? And also, like, does that have to mean anything? Right. That's a question where, uh, coming back to what you said about it being, you know, a book about women, I think that's where that kind of network of women really comes into play. Because, you know, Yahaira's mother, obviously, has very, very complicated feelings. Um, but but she shows up in a very, you know, surprising way sometimes. Um, and Tia, you know, she kind of is bringing this very specific sense of comfort and sort of coming from a different experience and, and obviously not having had a relationship with their father, a romantic relationship with her father is able to sort of embrace this girl a little bit more openly. Um, but yeah, to kind of see how their elders are like, this is how we might reconcile and not even reconcile. I don't mean that, but like, this is how we might exist in this new space together. Yeah. And I think what's hard is like, and this is just like my secret. Like I think Liz Acevedo, the author has secret projects that she's doing with a across the books, right? Like there are my, if I were to step back and think of the legacy of the books, there are, there are things I want to ring true. Each book does its own thing, but I will say that it's important to me that the characters have the material to save themselves mm -hmm. um, woven into the fabric of the story, Th that they're going to have to find the answer in what they have, in each other, in their community, in, um, in the resources they're able to, to pull together, right? Like that is huge for me. And so the fact that the women would have to figure this out um, feels very true. Like I didn't, I didn't grow up in a community where we were always able to get resources from, you know, from more privileged places. It was, well, I'm going to go barter with the lady next door. And then we're going to go across the street and talk to this person who knows this, this thing. And then I'll, I'll sew something myself, right? Like that, this was how my mom navigated issues. Like I'll, I'll pull it together. I'll talk to people. I'll make a phone call. We'll figure it out. And, and I think that's how I try to craft books. Like whatever, Whatever is going to be the resolution, it's going to have to come from them, which often means that like maybe they feel the ending feels too spot on or, or you know, could this happen? But I just I hate the idea that solutions lie outside of like the people who who most need to be at the front lines of creating those solutions. Absolutely. And I also like to challenge those characters, I will say. Yeah. One of my favorite passages is from Camino. Um, 
And she, she says, but one thing I learned from the saints, when the crossroads are open to you, you must decide a path. I will not stand still while the world makes my choices. And indeed, just what you said. So this is great. Um, across your books, I think there's this really powerful theme of women claiming their agency and young, young women claiming their agency, um, which can sound, I think, you know, in this era also can sound a little too like commodified empowerment. I don't mean it that way, but, but, you know, just like figuring out like, okay, well, I do, I do have the intelligence and the resources and the things that I've maybe been taught that are weaknesses about myself that go against how I'm expected to act. Those actually have a lot of power. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I'm trying to do two things with the young women that I depicted. And part of it is very aspirational, right? That it is about like, can I, can I show a character that either is very confident in who she is and thusly serves as an example for like what it means to own your voice and your space and be very clear and also show a character that like in other capacities does not know what she's doing. And it, it is the example I wish I could have had when I was younger. Like there's so many things that I'm working on in therapy, setting boundaries, learning how to say no, learning how to um, be very clear what my desires are and being able to go after them, right? Like all these things that at 32, I'm trying to figure out. And And I just wonder like, if I had been told at a much younger age that I was allowed to craft myself, my life, my dreams um, in ways that served me, if I was taught that I could navigate interpersonal relationships differently, like I, I just wonder, I wonder how much I could have um, just handled very differently, right? And maybe a lot less painfully if I had had those explicit lessons early on. And so that there is a little bit of me that is trying to create examples in the books of like, not necessarily pathways for readers, but I think affirmations or reaffirmations for reader, like whatever kind of girl you are or want to be is okay. And whatever that empowerment looks like, owning your your body, your thoughts, whatever you want to say, like is okay. And if you don't know yet, that is also okay. You know, like, and that feels critical to me. It feels so important to show women who, you know, who will figure out how to how to do this thing. I want someone to leave my book feeling like, all right, whatever I'm in, I got this. Right, right. You know, I think now as an adult, when you think about like why you read and what we're drawn to, I, I think as an adult, I think a lot about experiencing other experiences that that I haven't had. But But I think as a young reader, I was absolutely just looking for my own reflection and looking for somebody to tell me like, you're fine. Mm-hmm. And so I think, yeah, especially you know, when we're talking about characters who, um, or readers rather, who aren't seeing themselves reflected in characters in mainstream literature, you know, historically, yeah, to be even more starved for that. Can we talk a little bit about you and your writing, just like your writing life? Like, I, I don't like to say routine, because I know that nobody really has one. And, and sometimes that word is horrifying. But um, what a day writing might look like for you. Yeah. You know, I, I used to have a very um, compact answer for this. And, and the th- you know, the truth of it is my schedule is changing a lot. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to roll with the punches. I tore pretty heavily or have toured pretty heavily for the last four years. So I, I was on the road a lot doing presentations. It's very hard for me to write when I'm on the road because 
you know, I'm standing in front of an assembly of 400 teenagers or I'm doing an evening event at a library or a bookstore event and it's a lot of voices. I'm interacting with people all day. I'm answering questions and I feel like when I'm in, quietly at my laptop, I'm trying to filter through all of those voices to get back to the one inside of me that's like telling me the story. It's hard. And so I, I kind of need a mental break from public events. And so... I usually write in the summers or have drafted the first draft um, in the four months or three months I have in the summer, and then we'll revise during winter break. And that's what I've, I've been doing. Folks don't know that by the time the Poetics came out, I mean, my second novel was already drafted and Clap When You Land had a very, very early draft done. And so I, I've yet to have to write a book under the pressure of a deadline. Right. So my schedule now that I'm on the road as much as I am and also people have a very specific expectation of when one of my books will come out. I'm, I'm approaching it differently and I had to slow down a bit. But so the regular day for me looks like I try to get to my laptop by nine o'clock. I answer some emails. I give myself an hour to get to as many emails as I can. And then depending on the project, I will go on Twitter or <laughs> I will actually jump in. Um, Revisions for me feel very different than when I'm drafting. Mm -hmm. My brain wants to fix. My brain wants to be solution oriented. It wants the material of, okay, here's a thing. Let's go ahead and like iron it out. I have to do a lot more prep work when I'm trying to create from scratch. And so that's usually rereading the last page I wrote. I won't go much farther than that or else I'll just be tinkering with things. But I'll read the last page and just kind of sit with the voice for a little bit. I might try to reread something from a craft book on just like, okay, here's an approach I'll take today. I'll try to write um, more about scent or I'll try to uh, really paint the setting today. Or And these are just like exercises to give me an objective outside of like, today I'm going to write a book. Right. And, and I try to keep that foremost. Like I'm not trying to write a book for the public. I'm trying to be experimenting and and literally treat this like a playground and just see like what I can invent. And sometimes that will be a letter from a, you know, side character's perspective. Sometimes that'll be jumping to the end of the book to the scene I'm excited to write. Sometimes, you know, it's creating a dream sequence that may or may not ever end up in the book, but um, I don't write linearly. I don't outline. And so every time I sit down, it's kind of like, well, here's what I think the character is telling me should happen next. And then the ritual of forgiving myself for every terrible sentence. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. You would not be surprised how many conversations in this show involve <laughs> coming to peace as slowly as, as you may with the fact that it's going to be awful at some point. <laughs> it's really interesting um, going back to something you said earlier, because there's a lot about boundaries and, and container, like thinking even of containers as boundaries and like narrative containers as boundaries. I think it's your approach is very interesting. And, and I'm going to steal it because it sounds really <laughs> healthy. It's much healthier than mine. <laughs> I think I have to also because I'm playing with so many genres. Like sometimes something, is, you know, I'm writing and I realize, oh, this is going to sound really great on stage. Like I should memorize it and, and then work with my body to figure out how to perform this. And that's a different project, right? If I'm working on fiction, whether it, it's a verse novel or not, the, the point of this thing is now finding a character. So then I have to be active about chasing down that character and I have to show up, right? With all of these things have different end goals for me, the writer. 
So I kind of have to create a different uh, compartment or else I'd be very lost, I think. I think it would be very muddied um, what each thing needs from me. Well, I would love to close our conversation with a question that I always ask everybody before we wrap up, uh, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Creative satisfaction. I think I'm so simple. Anytime I solve a a problem in the text feels like I won the day. And sometimes the problem is just language. Like, oh, I cannot... I know that there's an opportunity for a really great metaphor here and I can't find it. And so I'm just like, okay, well, what what could what kinds of words would the character come up with? What would the character see? How would and then when you find that perfect thing and it's like, you know, I feel like a dish rag that's been left out, a soiled dish rag that's been left out in the sun. And I'm like, yes, like that is it. That's exactly what, you know, that, you know, that moment is perfect. Like that to me is the most satisfying feeling. And whatever else the writing does that day, it, it could be horrible, but like here was a moment I arrived at and I and it was precise, right? Absolutely. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's such a good feeling. And I think I have to chase the really small ones because otherwise I would be trying to figure out plot points, which like you're, those require, I think, a lot of thinking and days and revisions and really grabbing the whole story. But what keeps me on a daily basis, finding creative satisfaction is like precision. Whenever something feels like it clicked, whether it's um, here's the climax and can I get them out of this situation and you figure out, oh, this one thing I mentioned in the beginning, like I didn't even know that I was foreshadowing for myself, but like that's perfect, right? Or, you know, even something as easy as arriving at a character's name and realizing like this was the name they had to have. Like whenever something feels reaffirmed, this was the project I was setting out to do and I figured it out. That's my bag. <laughs> I love that. I just had like a couple weeks ago for like a project that like I haven't fully really started, but I've just been kind of tinkering with and I was reading something and it, it was nonfiction and just mentioned somebody's name. And I was just like, that's the name. And it was just like everything like everything changes, like the whole energy of it changes. Because I think that it's often like, we know a story, but then we realize that there are depths to the story, but also to our own consciousness of what the story is that, that's working all the time, right? Right. That whether or not we are sitting in front of the laptop, I, you know, I'll be at a cycling class and something will hit me. And I'm like, that's the answer. Like, um, I was looking at my rocking chairs yesterday. I was like, I'm so glad I got these rocking chairs, even though everyone laughed at me because I bought rocking chairs in November, right? Like who buys rocking chair when it's about to be winter? And now I'm like, wow, you know, this is, this pandemic is about to get bad. And I am so grateful that I have this rocking chair. And then it reminded me of this poem I wrote months ago about looking out of my door, like my window and realize, oh wait, this is all the same poem. Oh, the wow. rocking chairs buying them in November, being laughed at, the fact that they're coming into play now in a moment that maybe isn't rocking chair moment, but like, what the fuck else would I be doing? Because right. like, everything is scary. I kind of just want to sit in my rocking chair, right? And so that all of this feels like when you are looking at the world and you realize it is all responding to the writing and the writing is responding to it and all of these pieces fall into place and you're like, oh, that was always the poem. That's why that poem never felt completed because I needed this moment. That doesn't even feel like writing work, but it, but it is, right? Like we're in conversation with everything around us at all times. 
And the writing is the reflection of that conversation. It's not just us with building blocks. There's no outside material. It's all here. And it's just like, what can you do with this? I love that. That's a beautiful note to end on. Well, thank you so much for making the time today. I really appreciate it. This has been personally a very rejuvenating, creatively speaking conversation. And, and I appreciate it at this crazy moment in time. I agree. Thank you so much for like being super warm and for reading the book and having such great questions. And yeah, for giving me something to think about besides <laughs> Corona for a bit. I mean, I think it makes me hopeful to be like, oh, I wonder if everything I've said is true. And like, let me go sit down and write and see. <laughs> right, right. Stay safe and well. And I hope your family stays safe and well, too. For sure. You as well. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.